A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be through Chapter 5 in The Hero of Ages by Brandon Sanderson, the third book in Mistborn Era 1. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. I was totally prepared to start that, like this episode. Like I was ready to give the intro because I thought it was my Mm. turn. So we almost had double talk there. Just... (laughs) I didn't know whose it was, and so I just went for it. That was kind of the... (laughs) That was kind of the mood. It's been, yeah. it's been a mood. It's been three weeks since we've recorded ish, something like that. Mm-hmm. So, it's it's been a bit. It's good to get to sit down and do this again. Yeah, yeah, it feels great. It's been too long. I think I don't like that yeah. long of a break because I miss your face. Aw, aw. I'm gonna turn my camera off now. I was having a much more fun time. Overseas. <laughs> so <laughs> You were having fun in Italy, and I was having fun at Disney and Universal. If you want to hear the whole breakdown of our trip, you can join our Patreon and listen to the devil's cut of this episode. We did. We talked about ridiculous things like Canadian steakhouses and the absolutely ridiculous burger that PJ had at <laughs> an Irish rooftop bar in Rome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right, so with that, today is our first episode discussing The Hero of Ages by Brandon Sanderson, and we are going to chat about chapters prologue through five. So, you know, the prologue's like two pages or whatever, but before we do that, PJ, what are you drinking tonight? So I've got a couple answers to that question, because oh. I'm a crazy person, and you know what? I've got jet lag, and I'm going to lean into it. So first one and the primary one that I'm actually going to talk about because I didn't write down the ingredients for the other. I'm just going to kind of try to remember that. First one, Hawaiian Sunset. It is one and a half ounces of vodka, half an ounce of Verjot, half an ounce of lemon juice, half an ounce of lime juice, one one teaspoon of grenadine, all shaken and garnished with a lime peel served in a coupe. I know sometimes I say coupe. Because that's what like I'd always been told it was growing up. But I think it's coop now. I don't know. I don't know what the actual term is. Anyway, served in one of those glasses. And it tastes almost exactly like Minute Maid pink lemonade. If you if you can evoke that taste in your mind, it tastes almost exactly like that. And it it's delicious. Huh. It's really good. Obviously I used Reiki of vodka. Mm-hmm. Not yet a sponsor. Unofficial vodka of the show. We'll get there. Mm-hmm. I'm sure of it. And then the Orjo and Grenadine were both homemade using the recipes found on Anders Ericsson's YouTube channel, if you want to look that up. The next drink I have is a trades, Trade Winds, but instead of the apricot liqueur that it calls for, I used banana liqueur. So I want to say it's an ounce and a half of cream of coconut an ounce of black rum an ounce of aged rum an ounce of banana liqueur an ounce of lemon juice 
and a whole bunch of crushed ice uh and then flash blended so yeah and then i being the sane person that i am thought it would look cooler if i put a float of overproof rum on top of it so i've got a little bit of 151 on top <laughs> nice so by the time you get done with that one fucked Absolutely. i mixed it i mixed it all i mixed it all in oh all right all that i meant is that on top of that that's like three ounces of booze straight up and then you also floated the rum on top it's i mean it's maybe a quarter ounce of that maybe a quarter ounce and a lot of coconut. i'm just like thinking about cream of coconut that's fair. Cream. That's fair. I, I don't know. Yeah. And if I get done with those and I still feel like <laughs> drinking something, I'm just going to drink water because I need to sleep. <laughs> I really do. It's been it's been a long time. But we're <laughs> going to so have fun today. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What yes, are you yes. drinking, Crescent? I am having kind of a main staple of the show at this point. I've had it a couple of times. You brought it on the first time, uh, but having a port lemonade really simple, really tasty, really delicious, cannot recommend enough, which is just one and a half ounces of vodka, three ounces lemon juice, three quarter ounce simple syrup, one half ounce port, all of that shaken with uh, crushed ice and then served over broken ice, you know, crushed, broken, whatever. I just break two ice cubes basically up with, you know, smack them and then throw them in. That's typically about right. So yeah, it's such a good drink. It's fucking amazing. Like I will, I will say when I made it this time, I was like just going off memory, and I'm like, I know how to make this, and I I shook it and I put it in my glass. I thought I I it was like, and then I tasted it. I'm like, well, this is super tart. This is like drinking three ounces of lemon juice. Maybe I should like round this out with some more vodka. And it's like, no, 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 that's not the answer. You didn't put simple syrup in it, you moron. <laughs> <laughs> so I put in the simple syrup, and I'm like, ah, yes, that's how it should taste. <laughs> yep. Uh, way too tart. <laughs> Without that. <laughs> well. I'm glad you figured that out because you're getting dangerously close to my level of alcohol. And then on this guy, I'm on my back half beer, I'm having a beer called Best Buds, which has a couple of stoned out of their mind little hops on the front with red eyes um, sitting there staring out, you know, baked out of their minds. And also, so it's an IPA. But on top of that, the alcohol percentage in the very bottom says 7.420. <laughs> the course. perfect meme. Yes. So Best Buds from Sycamore Brewing, which Good. has kind of been, I've kind of just been rolling through their stuff whenever something new pops up. It's like, ooh, let's give that a go because they're great. So, And no shock, it's a good beer. So before we get into the chapter specifically, uh, PJ, how did you feel about this week's reading? What'd you Good. Think? Summary thoughts. Um, Summary thoughts. Things seem different. And I, I think I'll probably get into that a little bit more specifically later, but not for better or for worse in general, but just this, the the voice feels different in this book compared to the previous two. It feels more flowery in the language and slower in the combat, mm. and the perspective seems a little bit less strict. So, I don't know. That stuck out in my mind. Yeah, I would I would agree with you on different... I don't think it's more flowery in the prose. I think that this is more talky in the pro. Like it's more the com- combat, combat specifically. Ellen's combat is a little bit different, yeah. But that's because it's Ellen. Well, but we're in Ellen's perspective mostly. When Vin is fighting the Inquisitor, is where I really kind of thought about it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel as like what would it be like stage directiony like some sure. of his previous stuff is. 
maybe I was alone in it or kind of a, a minority and really enjoying how like devoid of excess feelings, I guess. I don't know. It was, it was just action by action by action by action by action in the combat scenes with Ven in the previous two books. And it, it felt a lot more in her head, I guess, and thinking about things. And maybe that's a symptom of where Vin's at now, or maybe it's a difference in the writing, but I don't think we've had enough to really know. So Yeah, I, I'm more prone to go on. Here's Brandon once again reminding us of the rules of Valenancy, using a combat sequence and like describing everything as much as possible to ensure that if you're picking up this book for some reason or if you had a year off, you understand the rules again. I understand what you're saying. I'm just also saying that I think he's over-explaining things because it's it again is like, hey, in case you forgot, this is how this works. Fair. I, I know what you're saying. I just went back and read a couple of things and it's like, mm, it does it does kind of it does read differently, but I think it's because it's the first combat scene. I think that Well of Ascension's first combat scene was handled better in that regard, but And Mistborns with Kelsier's first Well, yeah, but that's discovery, so that doesn't really count. This is reminder, you know. So yeah. fair fair point. But cool. All right. Yeah, we'll definitely okay. be talking about the tone shift because it is there, you know. There there definitely is a, a marked tone shift to some degree at the beginning of this book. Mm-hmm. So with that, let's go into the prologue. Speaking of tones, we start with poor Marsh. <laughs> and I I really like being in his point of view because it shows us something new and deeply terrifying through the spiked eyes of an Inquisitor once again, you know, the first time really being Carr for the first time, you know, in a, in a long time. And oh man, is he pained, literally trying to kill himself, like literally trying to take his own life because he does not want to be a pawn in this game. Yeah, that was a way to start reading this book. Um, (laughs) Isn't that literally the first word? Isn't it like literally like... Marsh struggled to kill himself. Yeah. I I think throughout this entire section, I really appreciated how fluid it was in like dipping back into sort of the savoring of of the actions that he's taking. Like he very quickly kind of slips into it and he he breaks himself out of it, but he, it's just this kind of subtle like dip back into that that feeling. And my assumption on how that happens is like this combination of both soothing and rioting on different emotions, but that would require some small part of him to actually enjoy what he's doing unless we get into like sort of philosophical ideals of like everyone feels a little bit of everything at all times just to varying degrees but yeah i i found i found that cool there there's a question that's posed here which is that he feels like ruins control right like seep back into him and that's also when he feels this passion or like that's when you you feel that slip back into the mm-hmm. old things, and so I, I like your I like your comparison of like soothing and rioting, but I don't I don't think he's soothing himself or rioting himself. It seems like it's an external. No, I, I meant like yeah. ruin was doing both to him, like sure. suppressing suppressing whatever negative feelings and increasing whatever like pleasure he might find in it to like extreme levels. But I don't know what implications that has on anything so 
could probably just chalk it up to mind control to a certain extent at this point and probably get away with it. But I like rules. Yeah. <laughs> and we it's have awful. established rules. So I'm going to try to follow them until we get a different set of rules. Right. Until it is reestablished in some way, shape, or form, we must follow the rules. Um, I, I get that feeling. So it is trying to kind of work that out and play within play within the sandbox. But speaking of the sandbox and opening it up, we get two massive teasers here kind of right off the bat. That of hemallergy, and as we've already addressed, kind of the, the monster in the room, uh, Ruin, who emerged from the Well of Ascension. What are what thoughts did you have, or do you have? Ruin is too big to like address at this point. I don't fucking know. Like that's there's too much there, and and too little to go on. Like mm-hmm. it's just a, a giant force with so little information that I have no idea how to address that. But hemallergy is super fun. I'm really excited to see more of it. It's horrifying, and just a terrifying like process. But I think we'll see more of it, and I think we almost saw more of it through Ellen almost getting, like, spiked by the Inquisitor. I don't know what that means or what that would have done, but that's my, that's my like, trying to tie everything together right now. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's definitely a question about, like, what exactly is hemallergy as they drive this spike through a terraceman and into an Inquisitor. Mm-hmm. So, well, it's just based on the name and based on Marsh talking about like seeing the metal in people's blood mm-hmm. and like using that as a, as a way of seeing people. But hemallergy would would evoke blood. I don't know if it's like specific people that need to be utilized for it. This is a, a terrace scholar that's in a terrace eunuch, I think, similar to Sazed, but maybe not chemical maybe though i don't know if there's like a specific type of blood that's needed for it or if it's just somebody else's blood but i feel like it would make more sense if it was using someone else's blood to infuse the the spike and yourself i don't know i'll fucking know man (laughs) i mean it's very early so i don't expect you to know i also want to bring up something here that comes back to the well of ascension So all the way back in the middle of the Well of Ascension, when we were kind of having the first conversation about the contract with Orsur, is the first time that Ruin is mentioned by name. Because he is mentioned by name by the Chondra, as they're talking about the contract. When we're talking about Did I I comment on the You commented on the capitalization of Yeah, of of Ruin. You're like, that's interesting. (laughs) You're like, what the fuck does that mean? And you just told me Raffo, didn't you? I, I didn't just raffo out of it. What I said is that, well, it's like a dead religion, right? Like, what do we believe? Like, of course, they would oh, capitalize their god. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I wanted to, uh, at the very least, make mention of that. I feel mm-hmm. dirty to not read the quote to you at the very least because it feels dirty to just make mention of it and not actually put the full context out there. I just, I remember making the comment about the capitalization. Didn't remember it was ruined, though. Yeah. The stories say that you'll kill yourselves. You're you're of ruin, after all, while the Chondra are of preservation. You're actually supposed to destroy the world, I believe, using the Coloss as your pawns. <laughs> Is that before Coloss were introduced as well? No, because I think we see them through Sazed before that, long okay. before that. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. I think, I think, you know what? 
I think Brandon Sanderson had like things planned out ahead of time when he wrote these. Did books. he? Did, I don't know. Did he maybe have a plan? Was I it think plotted? He might have because uh, there's something in here from book one, like a prediction or something or that what? got kind of paid off. Like I feel like I made mention of it. I I bet. I mean, we'll get up to it at, at some point. I'm sure. Any other any other thoughts on kind of the end of this little bit here? No, I don't prologue? think so. Cool. All right, with that, we move into part one, Legacy of the Survivor. We've got our logbook here, of which is very fort, and it says, I am, unfortunately, the hero of ages. Mm-hmm. So this this starts my journey of who's writing this one. And I think with this, it is, at the very least, not present day Vin or Ellen. Might be written in the future. Like this is a, a future tome thing. I don't think so. But like that's that's my immediate thought of like who's writing this? Okay, not Ellen Dervin. So that's where I'm at with this. And that makes sense. That's a good place to start off the story on too. It it gives you the sense of tone and timbre, and you know sets your expectations for things to some degree. Like it sets this this sort of unfortunate tone which is fascinating from someone who's the hero of ages like we we think the hero of ages is a great thing to our recollection to everything we've been told so the sort of nature in which this is handled i think is fascinating yeah so this chapter sort of starts almost like a second prologue we meet fatrin talking about kind of the states of the mists and how like the mists are encroaching and killing people they're they're seeping into houses they're kind of breaking some of the rules before and that it's they're choking crops out other things like that are kind of going on in the background a f- step further than they were in the last book when kind of says was investigating kind of those early early claims at the beginning of the book but they're staying later and later and there's curiosity about what exactly is going on as we know that there's also this impending attack from a coloss army against this small city that is of course until a mysterious figure arrives on a horse that's our boy in his brilliant white garb elland now a mistborn elland rolls up like an absolute baller <laughs> i mean he is the emperor <laughs> like just basically acts like he owns the place because he knows he going he's going to soon like this is tindwell's hard work shining through finally mm-hmm. like finally paying off to a certain extent yeah um, right to his dismay a little bit but i'm sure we'll talk about this a lot yeah i have a lot to i have a lot to say on this front because i am i am equal parts intrigued and frustrated with the changes that happened to ellen's character off screen because <laughs> it's just like oh Okay, so we skipped the part where you changed. <laughs> like, yeah, it's fair. I'm not saying that growth off screen is a bad thing. I'm just saying that severe character changing growth off screen is not my favorite thing. I don't. So that's that's where I'm gonna disagree with you. I think because I don't think his character changes because he talks so much his like idealized society that he wants to that he still wants to create, but he's in this position where he has to be what he is right now in order to like get there eventually. But his ideals and his character remains. It's just, he, he has to give up the actions. He has to concede a little bit in order to get to that idealized state. But that concession happened off screen that, that whole conversation 
that was the entire point and interrogation of the last book basically occurs off screen. Yeah, that's true. That's my issue. It's less the end result. It's more the fact that you don't see the growth. And so it feels a little bit unsatisfying there. Mm -hmm. We see, as opposed to, this is, this is a good question. Where do you think Ellen's character goes from here? Like what's he set up to do? Like from a character perspective. As, as Ellen or as the emperor or what? I, I'm I'm thinking character wise, which means Ellen to the person, all of it. I mean, I I think he's kind of posed to become this warrior king, this philosopher king, like philosopher warrior king. And is Hasn't essentially he become that though. He's essentially you know? become that at this point. Yeah, but with with dramatic societal change at his heart, that he needs to figure out how to implement. I don't know. I don't have a good answer for you. <laughs> I really don't. Well, and and that's the thing is like I so I'm not saying that that's a bad answer, and I don't I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think that that is holistically the path that Ellen is on. But I think at the same time, we're arriving in this character with his character arc feeling like it's concluded. You know what I mean? Like this has been the path that he's been on to some degree. I'm not saying he's done. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying where does he grow from here? Where's where do we? Where does Ellen experience change? Or how does Ellen want to change? Or how could Ellen change? You know? That's a very good question. And a very good point. At the same time, looking at it from, like, the the knowledge of what has happened in this, like, interim time was essentially the same thing that we've seen here at, at smaller levels. Like, we, we saw these sort of these previous cities that they had to conquer fighting Colossus along the way. And it's just, it, it just be more of the same every time, you know, I'm not necessarily saying going back and repeating those events. I'm just saying, but aren't those events probably what shaped him into what he needed to be? I think there were probably discussions that shaped him into making those decisions. You but know? those discussions like, think... were with Tindwell and then people pushing him to like act on what she told him to be. Yeah, so, okay, here's my issue. Well of Ascension ends with Ellen being declared emperor, right? Not right away, not right at the end, but he is he's informed, of course, by Vin after Vin kills Straff that he's made emperor, right? Mm-hmm. And so he then goes down to the well, he gets killed, he becomes a mistborn. We then end the book with him and Vin on Rampart looking out over what needs to, what needs to change, like from Luthadel at the big wide world. And then cut, and we're here. Yeah. I'm in agreement with you. But I'm trying to I'm trying to like fight you a little bit. I'm with you. I get it. But at the same time, I can completely understand wanting to jump to this point too. If you move to this point, I think one of the things that should be done is also setting up Ellen to have a character growth arc, right? So, what's the next change that Ellen needs to make as a person or as an individual, right? Like, that's the thing. How does Ellen next change? We get to see him struggle with his like his current identity and potentially struggle with his identity as a mistborn versus as an emperor. Like mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's going to be a similar but different struggle arc as we saw with Vin being Lady Vin versus Mistborn. That's a fair point. He feels a little super guy-y to me. You know he what does. I mean? Like he feels a little superman-y all of a sudden. I, I'm yeah, I was gonna I was gonna yeah. say something similar. It doesn't feel super it's not satisfying because it doesn't feel earned. 
in any way. And then we get problems with the rules, but we'll get into that because what problems with the rules? We we re we reintroduce the idea of strength being different with flaring and oh. stuff in a very heavy way. Yes. There is an answer there, but yeah. Yeah. Raffo. All right. Um <laughs> <laughs> but we'll definitely we'll talk about it for sure. Yeah. But let's we'll kind of progress here through the story. So the rumors surrounding Ellen, I think, are really fun, giving him far more credit for things that he didn't do, like a lot of like killing his own father and other things like that. There's just like a lot of small things that are credited to Ellen in kind of this rumor will rumor mill way, and it it does show how a leader often receives credit for the workings of everyone else kind of beneath. This is, again, me kind of undermining Ellen a little bit. I do love our boy, don't get me wrong, but again, <laughs> just, even this feels like a stab in the front to some degree. <laughs> yeah. But it's... It's it's conceivable, too. This is actually reasonable. Like I Oh, don't... it's reasonable, yeah. but it's important beyond mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Because having a mythical character like this bolsters confidence in mm-hmm. the constituency and like it, yes it would potentially put a strain on the people actually doing those things and also on ellen for carrying the weight of sort of excess myth but overall i think these these claims have been allowed to continue to exist because it's good for the leadership mm-hmm. overall having ellen be a mythical character gives him more credibility as emperor yeah i i just think i have a little bit more of appreciation for a character of whom's like i'm not the man they think i am a little bit more understands that the myth is useful but then also kind of admits in private that it's like a problem if that makes sense or like a yeah you know I don't think we've really had enough. No, we haven't had enough time to even maybe get there. So Yeah, to know yeah. What, whether or not he feels that way. Yeah. I'm just putting out thoughts into the world. So Cause here's my thought. All of our interactions with Ellen are in front of an army that he's co-opting. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they're either <laughs> Fatrin, like from Fatrin's perspective, of whom is obviously jaded about the whole thing, or within Ellen's perspective and a little bit from Vin's perspective in the end. So, yeah. But none of it in private. Yeah, basically. The only thing that we really get kind of privately is when they're walking in the cavern alone near the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then again, you know, it's not. And, it's more and that's him based. constantly talking about his ideals and his, uh, his not goal, but, but his, his philosophy as a leader. Right. He also pushes that aside. We'll we, we'll talk about that when we get there. I have a lot to say about Ellen um, and the changes. Obviously, we've already broken into it a couple of times, but I'm going to try to stick to it until we get there <laughs> because otherwise we're never going to get through this episode. Yeah, that's probably true. Because <laughs> I have a brutal amount of thoughts on this. Okay. We learn the stakes. 10,000 Coloss marching down on the city and only Ellen and the couple thousand barely trained men to defend it. Rough odds, especially for this rogue city leader, Fatrin. And what's his brother's name? Like, I, Whipple? Uh, I can't remember. No, it's just <laughs> with a D, I think. Oh, D, yeah. Duffel? It's Duffel, du- isn't it? It's Duffel, something I like it's something duffel. very, very close yeah. to Duffel. D R U F F E L. I think that's a Pokemon. I think, oh no, Drufloon. <laughs> it's close, but 
<laughs> just like <laughs> I'm just I imagine with with a name like Druffle, the first thing that comes to mind is a marshmallow. I just imagine I, this marshmallow. Yeah. Like these kids were not treated well in elementary school. <laughs> no, they had to have been bullied. <laughs> I love how Fadron also doesn't have a last name. Like <laughs> you know, like I think Ellen makes mention of that. He's just like yeah. my name's Fatron and he's like oh, okay. <laughs> we'll get you a title later. Um a surname. You know. Yeah. But I I think that I, I, I don't think that was so much him looking down on him. It was more... No. Like, this this was probably a ska... Totally. Yes. Yeah. Person. I'm not... I don't think that that was a look yeah. down moment at all. I, I okay. do think... I, we're being harsh on Ellen. I'm not being harsh there. I think it was kind of a funny intent for us. And then on top of that, it's the fact that he's a ska and probably didn't know. Probably mm-hmm. never knew. I actually didn't catch any anything comedic out of it in general. Oh, honestly. I thought it was funny. I thought it was kind of like a ah well we'll we'll get to that later. <laughs> kind of a it's not crazy comedic. It's just like a little you know, yeah, little beat. But rough odds, you know. Yeah, um, not a great time. I think, like as, as a soldier facing those odds, probably wouldn't feel very good. Probably like, not fun. There's got to be there, there's some amazing fortitude by those soldiers, and I mean, I've never never been in any in any situation like that so i can't speak to it but it really kind of gives you an appreciation for anybody kind of looking into a battle that you're going to potentially die in and i mean obviously ellen is soothing everybody which helps but i think the point still stands like you've got to you've got to be super fucking brave in order to <laughs> to face something like that yeah yeah it it is i i think that that's one thing that ellen does really well throughout this entire thing is that he does really pump up these men and like really despite kind of yanking sovereignty out from underneath these thousand free men he does at the very least kind of like a con man give them a sense of power and control over themselves and like but like lifts him up a little bit again being down on Ellen a little bit, but like it kind like he knows what he's doing too. And Ellen is also down on his own thoughts. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Like he's, he doesn't like what he's doing either kind of. So but to that degree, what do you make of Fatron's discussion with Ellen about him being kind of a tyrant taking over and his hopes to someday be different than this? This feels like kind of a big departure from the meantime of what we've seen between the stories. Not that he wasn't on this path, you know, kind of like we said, but, We've addressed some of this of, like, stuff happened off screen, but now we're actually seeing it in the moment. Yeah. He's been an emperor for a year. He's gone through the same sort of action through several different cities, and I'm sure a lot of his disposition has to do with his his teachings from Tindwell, as well as sort of a pushing from... Vin's perspective, or from Vin and the rest of the leadership, to follow this path. I am truly looking forward to seeing how he wants to, or how he proposes he could change this. I think that's his growth arc. To maybe not to like the full extent, but I think that's a part of it is figuring out how to move from this utilitarian necessity totalitarianship to 
his idealized, very democratic system of government that he wants to implement. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's important later, Vin brings up, of course, that it's like, well, the city of Luthadel is still operating under your, you know, parameters that you set. And it's like, well, it's not necessarily good enough because it's not the, the ideal was to do all that. And I think that to a point. But he's sending wrong. all the people that he conquers to Luthadel anyway. Yeah, but he's stealing. Like, he, he also says later, he's like, yeah, I show up, I take their homes, I steal the food, and then I tell them to, like, leave and go elsewhere like yeah yeah it's not good no but the it's necessity he has reason for it it's necessity it absolutely is just because there's reason like here's here's my issue with and i think that this is this is a good thing to have a healthy debate around and it's something that we also have had similar arguments around in red rising right because it's like there's not a clean answer a lot of times especially when you get into the sequel series of red rising and whatnot there's not a clean answer to some of these things so the question both series kind of pose the question of like what do you do after you take down an empire and this in its own way is an admittance of maybe it wasn't so bad (laughs) but without the slavery that's kind of the issue at the moment that presses into my brain if that makes sense and he is also tag. He's wrestling with that himself. Like that's also mm-hmm. a thing. I think a a big part of it is the inherent comparison to the Lord Ruler that he has to like face every day. And I don't know about you, but I see a lot of good that came out of the Lord Ruler's position in retrospect. And obviously, s- slavery and subjugation is excluded from that. But everyone was safe. They weren't being, like, killed by untouchable spirits in the night or in the day. (laughs) Like, there was clearly... It it makes me really think that there wasn't actually any malice to the Lord Ruler's reign. Then again, he went on, like, public displays of slaughtering Ska in the streets. Personally. Personally. So, you know, that kind of fights against that idea. Just a little bit. Yeah. But it really does start bringing up some some questions of the motivations behind why the Lord Ruler set up the the country that he did. And that is a fascinating question that I think we will continue to interrogate. You know what I mean? Like, as we yeah. continue to learn more from these, like, plaques that we get even later here that we'll talk about it's kind of we're obviously experienced this experiencing this lifetime but it is kind of difficult to talk about the sequence in section like in order because it all feels so it does feel back heavy in a way because everything on the front is kind of clarified by things on the back so yeah there there is there is this subtle note though that punctuates the conversation i last mentioned ellen does most definitely soothing vatrin as he's more agreeable and describes himself as wanting to do as ellen says which in this case, slightly more than others, feels a little bit more emotionally manipulated. <laughs> Maybe. I think we've seen a couple moments like this in previous books, but I think it's a lot of fun to see this moment in perspective and really, really feel as much as you can the the, the soothing. The change, yeah, because it feels yeah. like there's a change in Fatron's mind even about things as it's going, which is very cool and is perhaps one of the best examples of showing not telling that Brandon has pulled off in these books. 
yeah. is whenever you experience soothing or rioting from someone else's perspective. It's always so fascinating. Yeah. So this chapter ends with the conflict uh, about to begin. Please, like, there has to be fan art of this moment of him standing on the on the wall, bite the bulwark with his with his like sword raised. Like there, that has to exist. I don't know that I've seen it specifically, but there is a ton, and I mean a ton of Ellen Hero of Ages artwork. Well, I'm not gonna look that up. You can't, <laughs> um, because a lot of them are spoilers. Because, One of them is such a spoiler because it's him with a hook for a hand and giving Rune a smoochie poo. Yeah, yeah, the best fan art. Hook-handed, one-eyed Ellen giving Rune a kiss. A little kiss. Just a little a kiss. A besame on the cheek. <laughs> pirate Ellen. Yes, Pirate Ellen. Yar be under my control now. <laughs> Marge to Luthadel. <laughs> we be taking this food from this here cavern. <laughs> You'll get your goods later. <laughs> So bad. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why do all of our voices devolve to the same accent every time? I don't, know. I don't know. I don't know. We have a problem, but it is ultimately. I think Pirate Ellen is very funny, and I prefer Pirate Ellen to Emperor Ellen from now on. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to be imagining that. Emperor Ellen. Emperor. <laughs> when you've got two R's that you have to roll in separate parts of the word, it becomes more difficult. Okay, cool. <laughs> now that I'm crying, chapter two, we move in here with the logbook. Uh, and to quote, holding the power did strange things to my mind. With just a few moments, I became familiar with the power itself, with its history and the way it might be used. Yet this knowledge was different from the experience or ability to use that power. For instance, I knew how to move a planet in the sky, but I didn't know where to place it so that it wouldn't be too close or too far from the sun. Sounds a hell of a lot like the way A-Team affects the brain. Hmm. Hmm? In the way that you don't understand why you're comprehending, how, what your like your brain synapses yeah, change. Yeah, changes how you comprehend something. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. seems yeah. Uh, apt to bring that up. Hmm. Are you suggesting that there's a connection? Yes, Crossland, I am. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Quite. I'm sorry, I needed it spelled out for me because I can't read between the lines. Just kidding. So, <laughs> any anything else on that one? Uh, nope. Cool. We then move over to our new POV, that of Tensoon, the former Chondra imitator and a character that we know shockingly well from the last book. Of course, we knew him as Orsur there, but now we really know him as Tensoon. And it starts with some interesting things about the Chondra, that of the different generations, the ability to generate sensory organs. We find out that Tensoon is a member of the third generation and that there are firsts and seconds and other things like that. That said, we finally get a picture of what the Chondra are. What do you think about them how about your thoughts on like blessings and, and things like that we don't get a ton but you know like you get a lot of teasers yeah i mean we get a lot of teasers but at the same time we really don't get a whole lot like we it, we get we get some terms and we get a very tiny amount of like connective tissue but 
overall, I feel completely in the dark about most of the things, especially the generations and the blessings. Like, are the blessings a physical thing, or is that just, like, I have a predisposition to, like, be a little bit more fortuitous in my mind? Like, what? what's, what's what, man? And generations, I assume that has to do with, like, how the chondra are sp- spawned, are created. Like, they're created in batches or generations. That's my thought on that. They're not, they're not born like most biological organisms are, but rather in, like, groups. I don't know. I don't know. That's all. I, that, that, those are my thoughts. It seems very light on specifics yeah yeah i don't think it gets specific at any point like it doesn't get overly into any of the details on a lot of this but it does give us you know general general ideas and it kind of in the most obscene metaphor that popped into my mind immediately when you started talking about this i was like yeah it is kind of like a it's like a taste it's you know like a sampling it'd be like sticking your tongue into tequila and being asked to say what it tastes like and like all you did was like dip your tongue in it like that's dumb you don't taste anything that way that's not how it works I think we should do that now just like have little tequila tasters and just like put our tongue uh but anyway so i'm imagining the same kind of process of like sticking your tongue out into the tequila like just like that one tastes like roses <laughs> mm, gross um, <laughs> great way to waste a lot of tequila yeah gross <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, but you would never get a sense of what it's like, which is what this this ultimate teaser is kind of like. Yeah, mm-hmm. lots lots more to come, obviously, but it's interesting to see this new perspective kind of dropped on us here. This this entire week is mostly perspective, 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 perspective to give us an idea of which characters we're gonna live in heads more in this story. So, mm-hmm. you know, to that point, Tensoon is quickly liberated from his imprisonment, and we get a better understanding of the severity of his crimes. He's doomed his people and not just broken, not just having broken the contract because he's given away the secret of the Chondra, of which we also later learned that the Lord Ruler put on one of the plaques. So, <laughs> oh no, that was the Coloss, not the Chondra. He says, like the Chondra, I built in a weakness, which assumes that maybe yeah, on a different plaque he explained it. the, yeah. No, I, I, maybe. I guess that could be read in a couple different ways. I think it implies it, but I don't think it's strictly. I think the the way I read it was like the Chondra. I built in the same weakness as I did for the Chondra. So even if Mm. it wasn't said before, like this, this applies to both. Sure. That's, that's the way I read it. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. But I'm coming at it with the, with the understanding of, yeah, they're the same. So maybe. Mm -hmm. But to what you said initially, was he actually liberated from his prison? I thought he was like being acid burned in his liberated cell. in in the term of like literally removed from his cell. I think because they I don't open think he up was, the roof. Though. Well, they open up the roof and they pull him out, and then no, that's they open when up the roof and part, start pouring things into him. They drop I, they drop the skull on top of him. While he's still in his cell. Thought. That doesn't feel quite right. I thought they fished him out, and then they gave him the skull, and then they were dropping him into Oh, they were like hooks. Yes, because they, yep. they hooked him. Yeah. They hooked him like a fish. Yeah. Yep. Like, a, like a glob. Right. Right. Hooks came next. They looped around my muscles, and then, yeah. Grabbing him and ripping his flesh as they pulled 
him out of the pit. It hurt, not the hooks alone. I know you want to bring up and talk about perspectives. The way that the way that Tensoon is written is very strange in that way, where it feels mm. like he's kind of bleeding between third and omniscient a little bit. Yeah, and we get that later on with Ellen and Vin. We get that a little bit even like in the pre- in chapter one with I think with Ellen or maybe not chapter one, but the first perspective where like the first bit of Ellen's perspective, we get I think some chapter three, but yeah, maybe that's chapter three. We we get some yeah. omniscient sort of understanding of Fatron's feelings and motivations, like while we're in Ellen's perspective, like it doesn't feel super solidly first person like the previous third person. Yeah. Third person, but solidly like individual perspective. Yes. Right. Like the previous books did. Yeah. Yeah. It does. It definitely feels like it kind of crosses the line a couple of times and kind of like waxes and wanes in a way between that. Is that important or intentional or I just a style change? I think it is It's a great question. I would need to further dive in, and I think it would only be appropriate to further read to see if it's maintained. So, yeah, I, I think that, by and large, I do really like this book. It does feel very different in a number of ways right off the bat. But the characters that are fun and interesting are Tensoon and Seiza, whom, I mean, maybe Seiza isn't fun. I shouldn't say Seiza is I, fun. I thought it was fun. It's, it's fun in, like, a very, like... yeah right morbid way not morbid yeah. dark probably just dark yeah I, I have no problem with inhabiting a depressed character's head and kind of like getting getting in their thoughts and like thinking and trying to like break down you know how they're reacting to things and i think that his his character arc and growth makes sense logically picking up from where the last story ended and is setting him on a trajectory to actually grow but <laughs> so with that, I do want to wrap up at the very least about Tensoon a little bit here. So Tensoon is about to be executed by this acid, like we were saying, when he quickly manages to form a body and whispers the word judgment so that his trial and announcement of this might be public. He's willing to face endless torture as opposed to this kind of quick death for, you know, the sake of his people, it seems like. It's kind of, it's it's a question, you know. Yeah, I, I guess I'm confused by this decision. And my assumption at this point is that he'll try to convince this generation or this, I guess it's the second, I think it's the second generation that's like judging That's, yes. Convincing them to write a new contract based on his experiences with Vin and seeing how humanity's like dispositions has potentially changed. Like that's the only reason why I can think that he would actively think about what he had, like what's in store for him and still go through with it because there's not a whole lot of like good that he'd be doing by, by talking about this, you know, just like there's not a whole lot of truth telling that comes out of this or information that can be used by the public that can come out of this. Like it has to be something that, something else that he has to tell the other Chandra, right? 
Yeah, he feels that desire to, right? Because he feels like he has a duty to inform them mm-hmm. and that they're kind of burying it to some degree. Like, the this quick and easy death isn't the right or honorable thing to do, even if the other punishment is going to be infinitely worse um, than this release that they're trying to give him, you know? Mm-hmm. They're kind of, like, in some ways, they're both doing him a service as well as doing themselves a service by, like, protecting, you know, keeping the lie right. out of the limelight. But I guess my point is his motivation has to be for the Chandra. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not it's not self-motivated at all. This is right. all. Yeah. Because uh, presumably either way, he's going to either be killed or tortured forever. But the only way it makes sense for him to opt for being tortured forever is if he benefits the rest of Chandra kind. Yes. So. Yeah. And I think he firmly believes that, which is why. Yeah, it's he just like to... what is he going to say that justifies that? Based on what we know yet, I don't know. Other than like, not all of them, like, not all of the Mistborns are out to kill us. Not all the humans are horrible. Like that—that's the only thing I can think of, and that seems like a not, like that seems like a trivial thing to die over, like a non-starter. Yeah. 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 I would agree. Or not die over, I guess, in this case. Yes. Yeah. To not not die over. Whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't keep track at this point. Fair point. There, There's a lot um, here to unpack with Tensoon, and I think that's what's very exciting is that this gives us this lens into, you know, his story appears like it might be a trial. <laughs> <laughs> for a bit you know it kind of mm-hmm. gives us this impression of where i'm really i'm excited to inhabit his perspective as long as it persists <laughs> yeah, right and, i mean maybe maybe every once in a while we get another like two pages of slow never-ending agony <laughs> <laughs> i'm um, tasting the walls i am tasting the dirt <laughs> <laughs> my skin is the walls <laughs> 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 the rock tastes like mold and the mold tastes okay, like okay. green. What happens in this scenario? Okay, let's just tear everything down. Like, just ignore any other implications. Let's assume Tensoon is imprisoned for life. He's in this pit. He has experiences taking on the forms of animals. Now, what if a mouse comes crawling, mousey. In, comes crawling into the cell? Can he build a larger skeleton based on a tiny like mouse skeleton like that? Great question. Hmm. Hmm. Also, similarly, what is stopping him from producing bones on his own? Given that he can create sensory organs and organs like that and like is it just that it's it like What's the delineation between soft tissue and bone that, like, makes it impossible to create? I think it's literally that. Okay. Yeah. It's like a guide to some degree to, like, put things in place. Okay. I think that's about as far as we get right now with that. So he could become a full shark on his own. In in theory... No bones. I got no no bones. bones. (laughs) I got no bones. Just teeth. (laughs) Lots of teeth. A bug with an exoskeleton, an invertebrate. There are questions there of like, could he, you know, could there be more? Yeah. 
I want Bug Chondra. Bugdra? Chondra Mantis. Chondra Mantis. Your line of inquiry is fascinating. With that, we'll go to chapter three. <laughs> go fuck yourself. <laughs> um, and we start off chapter three with a logbook. In some ways, having such power was too overwhelming, I think. This was a power that would take millennia to understand. Remaking the world would have been easy had one been familiar with the power. Yet I realized the danger inherent in my ignorance. Like a child suddenly given awesome strength, I could have pushed too hard and left the world a broken toy I could never repair. All right, so we're getting back into the question of who is this? And there is the first sentence here. In some ways, having such power is too was too overwhelming, I think. This is Sazed or Tindwell, based hmm. on the based on their speech patterns. And I am going to make the case for Tindwell because of the resurrection of Elend that took place and the previous prophecies that have been put forward and sometimes rejected being that the hero of ages is going to be a terraceman and taller than everybody and then the other the, the one that was rejected to a certain extent was male i like i like the idea of tindwell becoming this hero of ages ushered forward by sazed bringing her corpse down and feeding it the remaining weird bead that was fed to Elend. Because then we get Mistborn Ferric Mist. But like the Lord Ruler. Like the Lord Ruler. Hmm. So uh this is obviously something that I can't really directly comment I, on. I know you can't talk about it at all. That's fine. But that that's where my brain went, just yeah. based entirely on the comma I think. You know? <laughs> That's fascinating. That's that's super good. Yeah. Brain so, gonna do what the brain gonna do. Yeah. If it's not Tindwell, I, I'm pretty sure it says it. Just based on that. Or it's somebody that we don't know entirely. That's that could be too. But I like to think Fatrin. it's someone we know. It's Fatrin. Yep. Uh, it's Drewful. <laughs> <laughs> Druffle potato chips. <laughs> Truffled potato chips is the the hero of ages. So yeah, I I think that th- this is meant to be a central mystery. This book poses each book has used the logbook to pose kind of a central mystery to some degree. Yeah. You know, the first book is who is the Lord Ruler. Turns out that that's a lie, and so like our our estimation of like of trying to understand the Lord Ruler through the logbook is wrong because it's actually a guy who died before he could even become the hero of ages so alendi rip the second book is really more about the capability of ruin to change metal but in reality is also about the prophecy of the hero of ages so like that's those are kind of your twofold points here and it seems as though this book is like you said it gives us this interesting impression that it could be future it could be past it could be being written simultaneously to events yeah i i got less of an impression that it was past and more that it was either like present or future and present being maybe a little bit farther farther ahead than present you know right i didn't get the feeling that this was like in the past and being like uncovered 
so I read the entirety of part one and my brain almost said something that's from the next part and I just realized that it wasn't in this. This is why I don't read ahead, guys, and why I rarely <laughs> read ahead before we do an episode. Wow, because that would have been a that would have been a slip. But to your point, I think that there is a lot of it is that central question. And the central question of this is also who is the hero of ages? Kind of also, what is the hero of ages? Actually. Because we have some vague ideas from everything else that we've seen and seen happen. But even in these first couple of logbooks, we start to see those questions be interrogated, like our assumptions interrogated, I should say, about what the hero is. So I did want to ring a little bit of a correction. Earlier you said that he for she, uh, I believe that they say that it's a non-gender-specific pronoun that was used, so it could imply she in the last book. That's what Sazed is saying. Yeah, yeah, but... What I'm saying is I don't, that it open I, it still opens it up like you're saying. I was just wanting right. to clarify that it isn't it isn't saying that it has to be a she. It's saying that it was That's that's more what I meant by pushing against the prophecy. Um because the the terms in the technical prophecy were not the like actual language used, but at the same time that language was manipulated and changed who knows how many times right so yeah who the fuck knows right did the prophecy even mean anything ever yeah yeah i mean the one that we read right at the end can't be altered so the one that we read at the no, end no but the it was book, based on something well he engraved it himself yeah but he was also referencing prophecy oh yeah that prophecy could have been fucked with to begin with but Yes, that religion was likely manipulated to begin with. You're you're not wrong. I was just saying that we do know we have at the very least a true account of what was in carved. Yeah, we engraved. we have we have a milestone carved. that like yes, any changes beyond that can be reverted. Right, right. Fair point. But who knows what came before that, and if that was accurate? Yes, right. I. Love that the section starts with Ellen pulling up Tyndall in his mind as he literally leads from the front, you know, <laughs> as this sort of reverse moment where he's like, she never believed that he would be here and now here he is, which is a great kind of, again, I've said this before, I'm going to say it one more time, but it feels like this is a conclusion to an arc at the very beginning of the story. Like, it feels like it is concluding the previous growth that we didn't really see him move to this point. We just kind of see the payoff, like we were saying before. But I do think that this is still satisfying because it is, at the very least, a direct callback to, you know, something from the previous book that I, I really liked and enjoyed that relationship. But I also can't step away from the feeling that I think that he sacrificed idealism at the altar of practicality a bit and that kind of sucks to see I know we've talked about that here and there yeah I think there's something that you're falling into quite a bit when you're thinking about Ellen here and that's I think something that he would have been talked out of and yes I completely agree with you that there was too much left on the table in that year as far as the growth of Ellen goes but the idea of making the perfect the enemy of the good and oh yeah i i think right. i i think it's very easy to make the case that everybody around him would have advised that making the perfect society that he wants would would not only be impossible would create this void where some other tyrant could come in and make things worse for everybody. 
which is ultimately what kind of happened to Josties. You know, if we if we think exactly. back to right. And I'm I'm not saying that entirely, right? I do I do really like that comparison because I think it is important, and I think it's critical to kind of what's going on with Ellen. I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up that way because that change is going to take time. Like it's not something that can be instantaneous, but mm-hmm. I do think at the very least it's important to. And Ellen also acknowledges, but I I do I feel that suck with him if that makes sense. Like that's something that I I empathize with is like that it's it's less here but it's a little bit more later it just at the same time it feels like such a a character blow in a big way but what's the alternative you You can't just implement what he wants that doesn't you can't like you can't just make that happen without an intermediary well they've been kind of in an intermediary so like i i guess after trying to make it just happen and it failed and it crumbled believe the argument at the end of the last book is that it was technically successful because he was no longer on the throne you know like technically speaking the system worked as designed but i i guess my my core point here is less that and it's more that like okay okay let let me let me fight against that a little bit sure the system worked as it was designed to allow someone else to conquer and take over the city yeah to eradicate the political system that was put in place that that's not the success of the system that's letting the system dissolve itself well the the system didn't really dissolve itself i guess the point that i was trying to at the very i appreciate the context because that is that is good to say at the very least like i'm not saying that that was successful i'm saying that at the very least he tried and then they put someone in power and then they found out that that worked and then instead of there being any sort of political machinations we instead realized that the only thing that rules is power which i think is the same thing that ruled before so what lesson have we learned here like what's the what's the real change intent of of our of the people who wield power like that's not a great i mean i'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing yeah but yes that that was the that was the lesson but that's not a that's not a le- like that's that's not a lesson that that is that's not a system you know what i mean like it's not a system it can't but, be a system but it is everything that can change in in this very particular scenario right now that's why i'm saying that's why i'm upset that he's sacrificing idealism at the altar of practicality you know what i mean like that's that's where my gripe with him comes from where there's not some semblance of trying to make some form of local governments work and thrive you know what i mean effectively he's perpetuating a state of government that was kind of broken to begin with and isn't like and i understand this okay let's think of like emergency powers that come to a president during like a national emergency like a hurricane in those cases like federal authorities have way more power because they need to get people out of places that are dangerous so they can do things like break into homes as necessary to try to save people you know if there's signs of people inside right so that's basically what ellen is doing to some degree like there is there is that rationale of emergency response of which i do understand and appreciate and i think logically makes sense and that's where i say this is the altar of practicality so so I I guess yeah I- exactly that you mentioned the idea of letting smaller cities kind of govern themselves but just the situation that the world's in right now 
not just the Coloss attacking, which was mm-hmm. brought on by them thinking about and talking about going and getting the supplies, by the way. Um, right. So they brought it on either way. But the mists themselves. Oh, you're right. Because they literally said it out loud and then Rune heard. And so they were all, yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But but even if that wasn't the case, the mists have been getting worse, which means right. with yes. without intervention, everyone and everything will be choked out. Yes. And I'm not discounting that at all. That's where I'm saying like that is kind of the sacrifice that has to be made right now. I just don't like that Elend is so gung-ho about it and seems to have also altered his entire So that's where I disagree with you. On the outside. On the outside. Okay. I can agree with you on that. Because he he comes off as brash as opposed to hopeful. And he comes off as commanding as opposed to inspiring. Yes, but we get his internal monologue too. We do. We do. I think that that justifies quite a bit. But I think that that entirely justifies it. I don't think it, and this this is my gripe with it. I don't. It does justify it. What it doesn't do for me is it doesn't show that Ellen. It shows that Ellen took the lessons from Tindwill and turned himself into a Terminator leader, not one that leads with any sense of compassion outwardly, not outward compassion. He is a military esque commander as opposed to. You know, and, and there are moments and situations that demand until I the battle's that. I don't done. Wanna... That changes Even when the then... battle's done. When he's talking about, like, he's giving ultimate praise to every single person and every single soldier, and straight up says that these soldiers are what kept all of us alive today. Like he 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 gets much less stern and harsh once the battle's done. Once it's no longer necessary to be so stern. Yeah, that's true. But he's still stern and harsh with Fatrin specifically. Because he has to be. Aggressively still. So. But but that's still that's still my issue is that there, there's no... The nuance is, listen to me, I'm a Mistborn. Like, it's, it's I am flexing my power as... like, And I'm not just saying as a Mistborn. It's, listen to me, I'm the Emperor and I know it's good for you. And that's... That's the issue that I have is it feels very But he backs it he backs it up with reason. He 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 talks about like if we let you have all this food right now and we just leave that opens up that opens yourself up to corruption and burglary and can you murder. deal with these things, right? And you have yeah. to deal with all these things as opposed to the idea of I saved you. We made this agreement. I understand how to protect your people. I understand how to distribute food and I have the means to do so. So like it or not, for your betterment, I'm taking over here. But that that is like a very colonial narrative where it's like you can't help yourself, so I'm helping you. You but know what that, I mean? Like it's not that's his ideal though. His ideal is utilitarianism. And his means are different. His means ideal like his, his means shifted off screen. That's my issue. That's true. He like and but, we're but we're just he, seeing he, the, he wants like, to get to what he proposed while the Lord Ruler was still in, in power. But he is in this intermediary stage. I don't like it either that it was off screen, but I don't think I have as much of a problem with it as you do. That's fair. I think that books 
to me specifically are about watching characters grow in addition to plot and other things like that like those are all mechanics that generally help the character grow or experience growth showing growth off screen is the worst thing in the world like outside of like a summer away or like an infinitesimal amount of time in which you don't see a significant change sure but seeing a significant change between books is like well, what the fuck happened to get him there? Like, where like, where did that change happen? When did he make the decision to go very utilitarian? And we find out that this is, like, the fifth such instance. Like, we don't need to see each city. I'm not recommending for that or, or suggesting that. But even the conversation about what needs to be done, as opposed to just having a flashy entrance, would have been better Yeah. to me. Because it would have, at the very least, given us a perspective of, like, like, Well of Ascension has moments of, like, people sitting around and talking. And I think that that's really good because it gives us perspective and it, like, lets us build and understand people as they work together as a group. Ellen is single-minded here and doesn't listen, doesn't take in Fatron's perspective at all, doesn't care, really. He cares, but he doesn't, he's like, you're just you. And you don't, re- like, I'm fine, we're going to make you a lord, but, like, you don't really matter. He's not so explicit, but it it gives that impression to me, and that feels so distinctly not. But it, it never gives the impression that that's what he actually feels. I think his actions make that. His like, actions are so he dis, he's tr- like there. It's so detached from what he actually believes, though. Which is the worst to me. Like that is that is the worst, and I don't I don't mean that in like a I mean that in a general sense, like in in like a, a real people character sense. One of the worst things to me is if you say that you hold an ideal and you don't behave that way. That's but why he doesn't I have, have an, such a he, do, he doesn't have the option to behave the way that he wants to. He absolutely could, at the very least, be behaving more in line with it. Instead, he doing again, what he doesn't have to demand that they follow him. He can instead just make the logical argument. And then make them make the choice. But they bring that up. They bring that up. In that he did that before. And it almost got... It did get Luthadel... Like... It it got Luthadel's government dissolved, essentially. Right. The one that he set forward. By, By giving people the choice, they're going to take the path of least resistance. And sometimes that means giving up everything and eventually being completely subjugated which is completely counter to what his goals are i i don't think it lines up with his character so to speak and i i no. think that specifically and i i think that's the whole point conf- but but he's not i don't think it's the whole point because i think that he should be feeling he does feel conflicted don't get me wrong but he doesn't feel that conflicted and Vin doesn't feel conflicted about it at all, which no, feels she worse to me. That feels terrible because she isn't even advocating for the people anymore. She has become subsumed in her own thing too, which, and she's like, well, it's the right thing for the most people. And it's like, well, that was the argument that Set was making in the previous book. Like, I don't, where does this end? Where does this logical train and fallacy end? And mm-hmm. that's my issue I think here is that, you know, sometimes you do have to give people choice and you have to give examples and you have to let the myth spread of the people who didn't listen. Like, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Yep. Yeah. It's not. I don't disagree with you in almost any respect. Right. I I totally understand the noble cause that Ellen wants, which is to save as many people as possible. It is unfort and utilitarian, like you're saying. 
it is unfortunate that he does so with such a heavy hand that it doesn't even feel like like he's creating a diff he's creating a tyrant myth around himself now like in its yes. own way as opposed to the person that we know he is which is very he's, different he's creating a persona yeah of ellen venture that commands the respect that's necessary to achieve the goals that he needs to achieve in order to save the most the, the most amount of people as possible right in his mind given given the framework that he's working within yeah right which is the whole like again it's the idealistic government can't always function and you know functions best off in a bubble and specifically the way that he is changed from someone who even like he doesn't even feel affectionate anymore like he doesn't he feels hardened in every way yeah i mean i guess he died but <laughs> almost died i guess but he, he got a ball fed to him yeah a little a little ball stuck in his mouth okay I think that will do for most of the shit that we have to talk about, Ellen, because I think that is literally the argument that I have for the rest of this section. So we might be a little cutty-jumpy here in terms of plot progression, but I do yeah. really like... What was that? We're gonna I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I do really like that Ellen, as a statesman, really appears to get how to talk to people, and that naturally leads to him being a skilled emotional allomancer. I appreciate that, I think. More than anything else, it's it's kind of a show and a flex of power in a way that lines up with his character. Which one? <laughs> what? Hmm? Yeah, Which question. one? <laughs> the, fr the, <laughs> the one from Well of Ascension, but, you know. And here, I guess, like, truly, but... There's continuity between character. I feel like I've I may have came off as very aggressive. There's continuity between character between the books. It's not as though we have a completely different Condren like transplant in Ellen's place, but it does feel like we're missing things. So mm -hmm. it's fine. Anyway, I'll shut up about it now. It feels like Ellen is approaching Alamancy and being a Mistborn, specifically approaching being a Mistborn in a very inverse way to the way that Vin did. Whereas Vin was very scrappy and unsophisticated going in. Ellen being very sophisticated and stately going in. Like they they get to the same positions eventually, but come at it from very opposite points of views or opposite directions. And that allows Vin to be very adept with more of the combat related allomancy and ellen to be more adept at the like emotional allomancy even though vin's first experiences was with her luck as she called it with with soothing so i feel like that's a fun comparison to make the the two sort of misborn upbringings though we we don't really get a ton of progression from ellen None from Ellen, really. But honestly, very little from Vin as well, as far as, like, jumping from no Mistborn abilities to Mistborn. I like that they're kind of a dichotomy in this way, even though Vin's first experience, like you said, was with luck, as she had deemed, you know, deemed it. But I do really appreciate kind of her, or rather his, his talents that are opposite hers in a lot of ways, because he 
excuse me, because she has been a knife and is now fully a knife, as we'll get to later. But it's, yeah, it's very interesting, very fascinating, as they differ so greatly on power and ability. So... Ellen mentions that Vin believes his allomancy to be much stronger than it should be. What do you think about that comment, and why do you think that could be? Motherfucker. I mean, this is kind of you know kind of what we were just poking at with emotional allomancy, but then on top of that, there seems to be you know a different strength level of which we do literally see with the Inquisitor. Strength sucks, man. I want specifics. I want understanding. We had that. And then things got flexed with the strength thing and the flaring thing, which comes back more and more. But I want I want the rules. I want the rules. I really didn't think a whole lot about why. Like, honestly, why his is so much stronger? Because I was just thinking about how that's fucking possible. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to begin with, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm just... I'm, I'm grasping for an understanding. I guess at this point. Okay. No, no assumptions. No. I mean, the assumption is because of how he became a Mistborn. Like he, he's got a ball in his, he's got a ball in his butt. I don't know. <laughs> Ellen can no longer poop. He went to the pooping room and he can no longer poop. <laughs> deep, <laughs> deep in the pooping room. In the pooping room. So assumption is ball though. That's that's your, yep. kind of, yeah, the little bead. Okay. Because 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 ball. Because, because ball. And and then, of course, Vin shows up. And we've seen this happen before, so it's, all, it's a kind of refreshing sight in its own way. You can imagine this being like shared language in a movie, shared like camera language, panning up and seeing her fly like a speck through the air and flying into view. And I don't know why, but I simultaneously love and think about her like throwing horseshoes as like hilarious and violent, like the most violent game ever. It just, it feels kind of funny and like I can imagine it like clinking off of swords and other things like that and like thunking into heads almost cartoonishly obviously yeah. it's not cartoonish but it it kind of I don't know it feels it, they're deadly of course but it's just tickles a fancy I mean they're they're practical right like they they everything about them is perfect for what she's using like what she's using them for they they have a decent amount of surface area they can be used as weapons very very easily they're flat and they have a good handhold as well it, it seems very like in any direction that they're coming up at her like it's going to be a fairly decent catching opportunity so like just from a practical standpoint perfect but it does absolutely evoke sort of a funny scene <laughs> yeah watching yeah, her kind it, of reverse juggle a bunch of right a bunch of horseshoes yeah, that's exactly what it evoked for me. Reverse juggling, right? And like pulling and throwing and then like grabbing. And it's just like, it's it's this interesting game that you can very clearly imagine of her like throwing things out and floating there and juggling one beneath her as she's like also rolling. And it's, I don't know, yeah. it's, it's a very fun, fun perspective. I um, think what makes it even more complicated is what we talked mm -hmm. about last time we talked about this in the previous book, which is how steel and iron work in that it's perfectly like against your center of gravity which means she's probably not in like the standard what you would think of as a flying position like she's probably like angled in a weird direction so that she can easily like grab from her like 
center of gravity. So she might be like kind of tumbling forward, like head down and like moving this way. <laughs> kind of like a lawnmower. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. don't know. This is, this is one thing where I think it would be very, very difficult to actually adapt to film. I don't think so. I think that this is this is maybe one of the easiest things to adapt to film. I think because you would take this as like, okay, this is what the scene should look like. We no longer need to consult the text. We understand what we're doing. Let's make it work. And then visually making it work is not that crazy. That's That's my point in that I don't think that the way it works mechanically works, quote unquote, in like a visual sense. I think it looks too... I think it would look too unnatural and too weird to like make sense as a flying mechanic. And I don't think that they would want it to visually look like that. I think they'd want it to look more like a spider, like a reverse Spider-Man like motion hmm. pushing through the air. Like, yeah, I, I, I think, I think it would look very, very unnatural the way that it would have to work with how she's doing it. You'd get propulsion, but you'd you'd be in a real strange angle. So so here's here's the thing that I think would work. So in this scene in particular, right with the horseshoes, this is where I think that you would show it, right? You would you would like throw them into a coloss and like see her shove off. Like you would you wouldn't just have her put them in the ground. You would have her hitting things and kind of bouncing between, not just like air juggling, right? So it'd be more like she'd be using the horseshoes to move and bounce, kind of in a variety of directions as she like throws and takes out people not like she's just plowing forward and flying through which is kind of how it's described i think it would be much more of like a full-on throwing from side to side back forward so you moment you'd start the you'd start after she actually makes contact with somebody as opposed to like watching her fly through as a speck in the air you would do the launch as a spec, but then you would have her come down and then, like, catch herself and throw in or, like, cut okay. to Ellen watching her land, you know, in, in, or, like, quote, land, but get really close to the ground from Ellen's perspective and then cut to her, like, dashing through and killing stuff. Okay. Yeah. The, the most important thing is you cannot frame this the way that Brandon has, I think, to make it visually While, while maintaining yeah. the rules. To, yeah, to make it visually interesting and, and maintaining the rules. Yep. So I think that you would have to, because you can you can make it make sense. It's just you know, yeah, yeah. So that violent game though is, is short lived as she manages to turn a coloss briefly before it is struck down by an inquisitor, and she has to fend off that inquisitor as well. And then, Vin burns Electrum, the alimantic complement of gold. It only throws out shadows behind her, which alleviates the advantage of Atium that other Alamancers or Mistborn or Inquisitors may have. What the shit? Does this throw a wrench at your ideas of Alamancy or anything like that? What would you think of this reveal or this moment? So a poor man's ATM. All right. Let's first and foremost, because it's not super, super clear. Let's make sure we understand what it does. Yeah. And it seems to me like it produces the effect that someone else would see if you were burning atm yes but you don't see someone else's shadows Correct. only your own yep yep and so it, it is a very specific half of atm a quarter i don't know because you're, you're dealing with two different perspectives i guess fair point this makes me want to revisit gold 
And it also makes me want to look into other non-trivial connections between different metals and how they might actually interact with each other. If there's some nuance that we're missing with each of them. I don't know. That's that's what I thought of it was like, okay, now that we're we're getting into this, let's try to remap this a little bit. Make it make even more sense. Yeah. I think that Electrum is fascinating and it it makes for a much more complicated table. We do get an answer to what the eleventh metal was a little bit later, in which it's mm-hmm. actually given the name Malatium, so it's not as though it's removed from the table or anything, but it is. Right. Which we, we got that last book, didn't we? I don't know that we did. I think I we, said it. We I thought we did. Maybe we did. I mean conveniently I have the last book right here. Nope. Rune Malatium won't work. Ah, yes, we did. We did get a last book. Three times. Twice, actually. Both times on page 82. <laughs> so literally on the same page twice. Yes. So we did get the name. Yeah. But that, that does clear up what the opposite of gold is now, and we really have this understanding of, you know, the the ferrochemical metal. And we have an understanding that there are maybe more metals out there, potentially. What did you think of the fight with the Inquisitor? His use of kind of the strange... Oh, that's a big question. (laughs) Right, right. His use of the strange spike that he he goes to Ellen, goes for, you know, goes for Ellen with, and the speed the Inquisitor suddenly has that neither of them believe to be a elementically possible, as well as the way that they're now kind of quasi-generals for the Coloss as they move across the landscape. There's a lot there, like like we're saying, but... So, I think you'll appreciate this comparison. It feels like we're dealing with Warcraft 3 hero units. Ah, niche (laughs) reference. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I appreciate that. If you had to describe that to people who don't get it, what would you say? I mean, it, it feels like... So real-time strategy games, typically you are controlling armies consisting of many individuals of like different unit classes. And in Warcraft 3, you also, on top of that, get these hero units where you get like one of them at a time and they have very powerful special abilities, each of them unique to to themselves that you get to strategize with and like use in conjunction with the armies that you're controlling. This feels like that. This feels like the the hero units in Star Wars Battlefront to put maybe more accessible comparison to it. But just like the rest of the battle really doesn't matter all that much as long as you <laughs> kill the target the hero, hero unit. Yeah. This this is also sort of getting into this fight with the inquisitor this is where i felt like combat feels less snappy just slower in general and we've talked about that a little bit it just feels like a different voice to a certain extent yeah but. and this is this is where i i think at the very beginning i i push back a little bit and i think that this is again Brandon reintroducing the magic system more than anything else it didn't feel like that the, the, just just the actual I'll I'll see how it comes, how it changes in future fight scenes. But it, it, that's not the way it felt, because even in situations where he's not introducing new moves or like reintroducing moves, it it just 
This is a lot more tactical, though, too, because there's also, like, the, okay, we need to get under the Inquisitor's armor and, like, get the spike, and then we find the shell, and there's there's a lot of that here, too, which is also not snappy. I'm, I'm, this is, this is kind of the feedback yeah. in here is that we, we I have, don't have specifics. It just yeah. didn't feel like the same fight scenes that I'm used to. I mean, he used, like, four times the adverbs that he ever does in a sentence inside of that fight scene as well, which, you know. You know how I feel about adverbs. You love them. So much, so much. And the Inquisitor obviously stabilized himself by pulling on the Coloss weapons in front of him. Again, I, I really think that a lot of a lot of that fight scene is more rules, but it does still feel like beyond just a rule reminder, slower. I do agree with that. But I'm willing to pin some of that on rules. <laughs> That's at the very fine. least. Because it is, you know, again that reintroduction. And mm-hmm. like I said, like I've said before, there's also a certain degree of I don't need the rules repeated to me again, Brandon, because I I've read the last two books. I I noticed that more in this than I did the previous book. It didn't feel obtrusive though. It's not that bad until it gets the thing. Here's here's what's other. I love you, Brandon. I love you so much. I hope we get to interview you someday. It would be fantastic. But also, I want to just say that a lot of other authors trust you to understand or like carry things from book to book a little bit more than Brandon does. But because Brand- everything of Brandon's is so interconnected and some of the nuances are so important, it's almost like he doesn't trust you to remember because you might not have paid attention to small detail X. And so he has to do a full refresher each time just to make sure that you have all of the arrows in the quiver that you might need. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that is a good thing at times. And I think at other times it makes me go, I don't need to read that again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <skip>. at, <laughs> at the same time, we got those intro- introductions in previous books in fight scenes most of the time. And those still felt snappier. The yeah. initial introduction to the, to the magic system well, the initial introduction, it's, I think, is always going to feel snappiest, right? Because it's going to explain as much or as little as he wants, and then he can explain more later, which he did. So, yeah, but it was still understandable. It, yeah, you it still was, got a was, sense of what the system did. So, I don't know. I don't know. I think some of its justification for like even capabilities out here like even that little segment that i read where he's like bound, the inquisitor is pushing off the swords obviously or whatever i guess is, yeah is one of those moments where it's like you also have to justify how this person is able to fight in the middle of a field yeah i'm not i i agree with you i'm just also saying i feel like i can i got i got one pass in me you know what i mean like you get you get the one pass and then we'll see and i i'll give the first one the pass but I think that there's also tactics going on inside of this one, which is another reason that it feels slower because it's not just fighting for life. You know, like mm-hmm. it's not it's not just Vin or Ellen, well, just Vin or Kelsey or rather fighting for their lives, which is what it is almost every other time. This is more of a tactical combat to some degree. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, small difference. All right, with that, we move into chapter four. All right, with that, we go into chapter four. The logbook here, of course, this is actually what happened to Rashek, I believe. He pushed too hard. He tried to burn away the mist by moving the planet closer to the sun, but he moved it too far, making the world far too hot for the people who inhabited it. 
The ash mounts were his solution to this. He learned that shoving a planet around required too much precision, so instead he caused the mountains to erupt, spewing ash and smoke into the air. The particles in the atmosphere reflected sunlight and made the world cooler and turned the sun red. All right. Well, I feel like if you still maintain the ability to affect the world like that, I would have just kind of wiggled the planet back and forth until you got into the right spot. Like you, it's not precise enough. I get that. Like you, you don't have the like super control, but you can take some time and really just kind of like back a little bit forward, a little bit. And, like you'll get it to the right spot <laughs> eventually. But instead, we get the sun blotted out by a permanent, persistent volcanic eruption that. I don't know. Fucks everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Rashik did a bad job. <laughs> <laughs> he, he tried to do the right thing, but he did a bad job. <laughs> Rashik was not the hero of ages. <laughs> no. Not quite. No. Oh, man. Yeah. 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 Cool. With that little logbook entry, uh, we move on here to Sazed, another point of view, of course. We, of course, had him in the last book, but it's good to be back with him, even though Sazed is in a dark, dark place. He sits and interrogates the religion. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a dark boy. He sits and interrogates the religions he spent his life studying, trying to find the one true religion, something he can believe in, and... Wow, it's it's a low place that we find him, him in, even when he's on this journey to help the Empire expand through treaties and the like as the ambassador. It's just... I mean, I can't think of a more fitting result of Seiza's identity crisis, though. Like, it hurts to see him experience it. Why wouldn't he really start scrutinizing the religions that he held so dear? Like, that, that mm. I feel like is the perfect stepping stone right makes it makes total total sense to me my my only sort of saving grace about this and sort of my my only thing grasping onto hope is the idea that writing down these contradictions and really thinking about them from a different perspective will prove very very useful later on i'm i'm hopeful to see that happen for Sazed, <laughs> for Sazed's sake truly yeah, I mean, you just want, you just want our boy to be okay. <laughs> yeah, well, he's not. <laughs> I know, but you want him to be, you know. Yeah. But we don't want that to have happened off screen, because that would be bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Anyway, I think I've I think I've talked enough about that. So yeah, I man, I really. I like the path and trajectory that Sazed is on, despite not enjoying, kind of like you're saying, what's happening to him. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a good, it's a good through line, but it's not, you know, not strictly the best. So for for our boy, what do you think about him being the ambassador and his kind of conflict of what needs to be done before he can become a leader of the terrorist people? You know, it seems to be the other part of his character here too. Is like he wants to be a leader fit to lead. Because he kind of has to be. Yeah. I think he's imposing a lot more strict rules on the titles that he've been, he's been given than I think probably anybody else is. Like, he's the one that's implying that being an, an, an ambassador 
necessarily makes him a citizen. And that's what he's like at odds with. And also being a citizen. So the, the stepping stones are like this. Being an ambassador, like a, a an appointed ambassador, necessarily means he's a citizen, which in turn necessarily means that he's gone back on the idea that his people are free. Like citizenship, in his mind, maybe rightly so, precludes you from being free. I don't want to get into strict like sovereign citizenship right ideas yeah. there but there there's certainly an existing philosophy that would feed into that and i can't fault him for feeling that way but at the same time it seems like he's putting those restrictions on himself as opposed to like feeling woeful about what system of government that he's found himself in yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting, especially when we compare it with Ellen and sort of the, the practicality versus utilitarianism that we've talked about before. He is strapping himself with different moral complications versus Ellen is willing to remove himself from moral complications to, to do what seems to be the most right, right? When it comes to him being an ambassador, right? Because Seiza doesn't believe that the terrorist people should be under any other sovereign government and, and therefore like should be separate in that way. It's it's interesting. It's a little bit more complex. I think we need more Oh, sorry. No, that's it. That that was the last word. You think we need more? I think we need more understanding of how citizenship works within this empire. In order to like really make a judgment call on whether or not Sazed has anything to actually worry about here. Yeah, yeah. He's he's making a lot of kind of statements and assumptions more about the fact that his people never wanted to be under another sovereign ruler that weren't themselves ever again or subjugated mm-hmm. in such a way. So I think that like his point is less his point is less that he doesn't trust it. It's more the premise or the principle of the thing, if that makes sense. Less technical. Yeah, it, again, it gets back to that that idea of, like, I think I think in Sazed's perspective here, we get a little bit of um, that echo that I was talking about a while ago, which is, oh, so we're just, like, the people who have the power are just going to be in charge forever? Like, that's what this is? And I feel like, while not explicit, that does seem to be a tinge... There's a tinge of that that you can pick up from Sazed because of what the Lord Ruler did to the terrorist people. And sort of his understanding, even though they're his friends, of of their capability. So, yeah, it's it's great to have Breeze back at the table here too. From their conversation about what should have been done here about Housley Callan, like all the way to his emotional intelligence about what happened to Tindwill, and Breeze's emotional intelligence to you know what happened and sort of the damage, the pain that he still experiences. It's it's fascinating to see breeze out and about again especially after the trauma that he experienced at last book he even you know lauds praise on Sazed for being the one to pull him out and help him you know it's it's great like Sazed said breeze breeze is a good man despite all attempts to prove otherwise or put on a show otherwise but man that bit where Sazed denies his attempts to convert him to a religion is wow a shift that's that's a shift and I think another shift is the the point where I think this is the first time, if not one like one of the only times we've seen Sazed actively have intentional negative thoughts towards someone, you know, like when, when Breeze is talking about Tindwell specifically 
and there there's just some really spiteful thoughts going through Sazed's head through that entire interaction and it it, it felt so out of character for Sazed understandably but it's definitely a change that we're witnessing yeah yeah it feels it is a it is a massive personality shift that accompanies the death of Tindwill you know kind of hand in hand here and you know was one that was telegraphed at the end of the last book so we can we can track that here pretty pretty simply and man Sazed might also be the last ferrochemist ever as we we contemplate that with the death of the synod and everything else and that also leaves him in a painful place and one that he again feels deep regret about because he is a eunuch and can't have kids and it's a, it is a you know genetic magic system so therefore it's it's passed down through blood it's a painful spot for him to be in too you are crossland forgetting about vin yeah hmm okay maybe maybe he's the last ferrochemist yeah yeah i i also agree with you on the maybe i think that this is kind of a big assumption too is that there's no other ferrochemist who maybe some terrorist people don't know that they're ferrochemists and it wasn't just the synod but they were obviously hunted down to with extreme prejudice so he probably knows slightly better so right I do, I do want to pull in a little quote here, of course, here, just to end the chapter. Whoa, hiccup. I just end the chapter. You were always the best of us, Sazed, because you believed in something. Fuck. It's, it's just so poignant because the fact that he doesn't believe now is such a pain point, you know, and it, it hurts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, it just hurts. You want, we want better for our boy. We'll get better our for boy our boy. Sazed. Our boy says it. We'll get better. You'll get better, says it. It'll be okay in the end. You'll find another lovely terrorist girl, and she'll be kind and smart. N- nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I don't think you will. Well, at the very least, you won't be a ferrochemist. And with that, <laughs> chapter five. All right, we move into chapter five with the logbook, of course. Each time Rashik tried to fix things, he made them worse. <laughs> No way. He had to change the world's plants to make them be able to survive the newly harsh environment, yet the change left the world's plants less nutritious to humankind. Indeed, the falling ash would make men sick, causing them to cough like those who had spent too much time, too long beneath the earth, mining beneath the earth. Jesus. So Rashik changed humankind as well, altering them so that they could survive. That's a fun twist, isn't it? Like, what would those changes possibly be and is this where allomancy comes into play because i think as far as we understand it now i don't think i missed anything allomancy was kind of birthed with the the first ascension i guess yeah yeah i think ascension is probably the way to way to say that yeah it does pose an interesting question there where we're we're kind of left you know wondering about like Alan Ansey and how that impacts people and then also these kind of changes and like you said I do think it's a fun twist that it's like he had to literally change the landscape and the genetic makeup of people in order to be able to survive on this planet that he fucked up and again just play with the play with the little scrabble wheel a little bit more and just you know scrabble it into place right the planet yeah just get it to fit right where it needs to got it got it so there are two notes off the bat with this chapter one character driven and one about the dissection of the inquisitor i i have a weird feeling about how ellen calls vin paranoid very directly i feel very strange about that yeah i do too i don't like it 
and it, this is counter to what I've been saying before, but maybe this is kind of a side effect of this newfound emperorness, emperoritude. Um, I'm going to hang on to that one. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, whatever. Sort of, sort of the tyrannical the behavior, though, yeah, like the yeah. assertive. That said, like he is dismissive, but it's not in an aggressive or seemingly intentional way. And maybe that makes it worse. It's, I guess, hard for me to call. It's, I don't know. It, it is a tough call to make, and I, I don't. I don't think that there's a good way necessarily to fully break it down. Part of, part of me says that it could also be again if I if I forgive the first 60 pages for trying to reintroduce people to the world, it could be a way of reintroducing that paranoia, but then again, that's showing not telling, which is a lot of the or telling not showing, and that's a lot of the kind of issues that we've cited kind of at the beginning of this novel to varying degrees. Right. So, yeah, I it it does feel it does feel out of character to some degree and it's not that it's not that he doesn't believe that it's just that it feels like he would have said it in a different way or would have been a little bit more political about it as opposed to blunt and i i would hate for the impact of tyndall's lessons to be a blunting of ellen's personality yeah you know yeah yeah the the second note here is the dissection of the inquisitor would you would you think about that sort of moment as they dissect and find an abnormal number of spikes as well as contemplating a third potential source of power what in like potential magic that could exist what's rolling through your brain about inquisitors now i guess they're adapting they're changing they're moving whether or not that's self-motivated or ruin motivated i i would think maybe both the little turtle shells probably seem more self-motivated individual motivated yeah i don't know yeah okay it it is it is interesting about like where that probably comes from or where it could come from so i agree with you it's it's definitely a question that is lingering in our minds as we think about you know this is what exactly are going on what's going on with the inquisitors we saw you know we saw a spike we've seen a couple of things it's posing a lot of questions to be answered for sure a lot of questions. A lot of, a lot of questions. We find there was another reason for them to be here, though, of course, beyond just protecting the city and the people that was important. That of the ministry building and the supplies that had stood away, hidden from all who had looked for it, except for powerful alamancers and people who knew what they were looking for. What do you make of, of these buildings and kind of the, the establishment here of the ministry and sort of the plan that existed inside of this religion? I guess, assuming that what they know about the Lord Ruler is true, this sort of scavenger hunt that's being placed <laughs> and created around Scadriel is brilliant. It's such a good idea, especially understanding that your foe, you, you can't, you can't stay ahead of them. If you have anything out loud or on paper, like the only way to stay ahead of them is by thought that, that makes that, that makes time such a critical resource in this story that i'm really excited to see how that gets expounded upon yeah yeah because if he could be listening at any time or moment like that that opens a completely different bag of bag of worms uh (laughs) bag of potato chips you know mostly air but full of some other things that are tasty and sweet and can be latched onto yeah yeah did you just agree with that silly metaphor 
because it did not make sense. So we, you know, I, I love, I love the term scavenger hunt because I think that it does really embody what this is to some degree. Like it gives us, I think a really great kind of analogy to roll with because it is kind of uh, a scavenger hunt. They get their next clues and they have to go look in Fadrick's next, you know, and it's, I think that's yeah. a great way, great way of putting it. Yeah. It's like a, like a treasure map. Yeah. With just like the next treasure map and the next treasure map and the next treasure map on it. So I think it's a great way of putting well, it. Well, if you're getting a treasure map and it only has one spot on it, you got ripped off, my dude. True, true facts about treasure maps here on Words and Whiskey. So <laughs> 60, 60 or so pages in for the first time, we finally shift fully to Vin's perspective as she and Ellen begin to explore the caverns. Vin probes her own thoughts on what she's seeing from Ellen too and his current growing pains in his new role, some kind of thoughts. And they, they have some like banter back and forth even. I, I was just curious about your thoughts about being in her perspective again. I mean, bringing up perspectives, this is where I first glaringly noticed the differences in, mm-hmm. like, third person versus a little bit of omniscient. Is there a term for that, technically? Yeah, there is. And I should say, this isn't really the first time that we've been in her perspective. We technically were when she fell from the sky, and we were, like, she was tearing uh, yeah. up the Inquisitor. But this is really the first time that we're emotionally in her perspective, I think. But... Okay. I think that this is more of a, and it's so weird because I have I have such a hard time besmirching or anything like that, but this feels like, like we were saying earlier, kind of an inconsistency of sorts. And it feels like some of that might just be language shift. It feels like he leans on the names a lot more. Like Ellen does this and Ellen does that, and that makes it feel more omniscient as opposed to being sort of submerged in the perspective and sort of feeling some emotions between actions, if that makes sense. It, it does. That's true. I just seem to remember, and I could be completely wrong, but I seem to remember him talking about, like, feelings and thoughts. Not, like, mm-hmm. quote-unquote thoughts that, that that person, but more ideas that they're thinking about Yeah, outside of the perspective, which is what I found odd. Yeah, more emotion generally, like a, a little bit more emotion conveyed, which yeah. we finally get when we're here with Vin. But before, I think, especially in chapter three, we don't really feel that much emotion. That's true. Yeah. So I agree with you there. I think that's where it kind of blurs because it feels like we aren't really living in the perspective that much. So they continue to explore the cavern and they get more. They find they find more down. They find the plaques that the Lord Ruler had engraved explaining metals and the purpose of them to anyone who might find them. And we get a map, a new location to go to where more information and answers could lie. What do you think about the cavern and like all the secret soup that he has down here? All, those all the boys. secret soup. Yeah, this is this is clever. This is super, super clever. Kind of uh, going out of his way ahead of time to... So a little bit of civilization, I think, will be quite helpful. And I think is exactly what the Lord Ruler was thinking would, would happen. Like, I think, I think he had the foresight to get into this scenario and be ready for it. Right, right. Yeah. And it it is fascinating in that way where it's like he had so much like forethought to like go through the the sort of steps to get here it's a fascinating move on all mm-hmm. fronts so 
We get, of course, another reveal as to why they've gone through all of these caches and what makes the cache at Fadrex, the next city that they're planning on going to, seemingly the most important. It is where it is. It, of course, being the ATM cache, they suppose. I don't think it's there. I still don't think that's where it's at. I think, uh, I truly believe that the ATM was used for something else. Hmm. Like a giant bomb? Like something. I don't know. <laughs> Leading theory is still spikes. Okay. Inquisitor spikes, but who knows? Okay. Fair enough. But we do end the chapter with two ominous warnings from the Lord Ruler, one from the very end of Mistborn and the second inscribed in the metal as well. To go in order here, you've doomed yourselves and the one in metal. Only your thoughts are safe. I think it's important that maybe we spend some time and talk about the Lord Ruler here to cap off the episode. What do you think about him now, given that the kind of extra exposure we've seen through from the beginning of this book and throughout the last to kind of Rashek and, and his sort of character as a person as a as a ruler as a quote hero of ages quote what do you what do you think this answer gets very complicated and gets sticky very quickly so i'm, I'm gonna he did preface bad. it with that he, he did a lot of he bad did a things. lot of bad he did a lot yeah. of bad things but as i mentioned before i don't think he was acting or i don't think he was acting in a way that proved that he was filled with malice but at the same time i don't think he held the same level of compassion that we know ellen hold and maybe that's due to the lack of necessity for it but who knows the character of the lord ruler is very quickly becoming more and more of a puzzle to me and you more than anybody know that i love puzzles like mm-hmm. i love little little things to kind of munch on and figure out similarly the only your thoughts are safe idea is that's a puzzle too I think just in and of itself, like specifically, how can you overcome that? And my only thought, given what we have so far. Don't say it because Rune will know. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but um, wondering if Electrum extends to vocals and would that allow, like would both Elland and Vin burning Electrum allow them to talk freely without actually revealing any plan because all possible plans are revealed but they're described as all possible movement and all possible actions it doesn't explicitly describe vocals i think that's the case though hmm. okay yeah that it does it does lead to some interesting question that is a great proposal because it does you know, it would it would shift the it wouldn't necessarily shift the rules at all. It just it plays in a different facet with the rules. So that is very interesting. Cool. Any other thoughts on this week before we close out with next week's logbook? I don't think so. I'm so excited to continue reading, mostly because I just want to know more of the story. You know? <laughs> like I'm yeah. I'm ready for it. Right. Right, right, right. Well, cool. Thankfully, we get to read this weekly again, and we don't really have an interruption to that. Matter of fact, in like two weeks, we'll be recording, three weeks, we'll be recording an episode in person, which will be fascinating. Yes. A very different beast. Entirely. It'll be a fun time. Well, I mean, it's just like, I don't know. What do we do? (laughs) What's going on, man? What's going on? Do we look at, do we stare at each other the whole time? Do we Mm -hmm. look lovingly into our eyes like potatoes? We're we're sharing a microphone. I don't think we're sharing a microphone. That's not going to work. All right. 
I love how I'm the low voice there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You're one of them. Cool. I, I was imagining myself as the higher voice. That's were cool. you? <laughs> I was yeah. imagining that you were making I was going up the higher and voice. then down. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that makes sense. It's <laughs> a fair point. You were literally positioning yourself around the microphone. Uh, yeah. All right. Cool. So with that, we've got our final logbook here from the beginning of chapter six. Rashik soon found a balance in the changes he made to the world, which was fortunate for his power burned away quickly. Though the power he held seemed immense to him, it was, in truth, a tiny fraction of something much greater. Of course, he did end up naming himself the Sliver of Infinity in his religion. Perhaps he understood more than I give him credit for. In any case, we had to thank him for a world without flowers, where the plants grew brown instead of green, and where people could survive in an environment where ash fell from the sky on a regular basis. God, this whole thing just gets so fucking complicated, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does give a very otherworldly sense to what the Hero of Ages actually is, mm-hmm. or the Sliver of Infinity, or the religion, or you know, and yeah. this idea that maybe he wasn't holding the whole power. Maybe this is what I was thinking about earlier in the episode, mm. where I said that there was something from the first book. I think mm. it might have been actually this. This would make sense. Yeah. Just the idea of Sliver of Infinity. Do you think that was something that was said and then a place for it was found later? Or do you think it was uh, always a plan? I guess first I'll pose the question to you. Do you think it was always a plan? Do you think it was found later? I think it was always a plan. I think Brandon Sanderson seems a little bit too on top of everything. Seems a little too planned for it to not be. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But we're going first book into series. Like, it's totally plausible that something was said just on a whim that became a fairly important part of the canon. The drafts of these books were all written at the same time. Like, he wrote them all back okay. to back to back. Yeah. So, I, I think that it's likely in revisions that he planted some of these seeds, you know? But that said, that's very different than, like, Pierce Brown with Red Rising, for instance, of where nothing was planned <laughs> right um i mean there were there were vague ideas but it wasn't quite so you know specific cool all right mm-hmm. well that is that we don't have any predictions to answer of course and we didn't really pose any predictions this week so i'm not gonna add any to the thing for the first time in a while we don't have a question for last week and for next week because we're still kind of recording these briefly on an abbreviated uh, a slightly adjusted schedule because i am visiting minnesota for a two-week period so we might Mm -hmm. be cramming in a couple of these so we're going to hold off on those until probably the middle of june ish and then we'll resume question of the week perfect so with that next week we are going to be reading chapters 6 through 13 so this will put us at the end of part one so we'll basically be wrapping up the first part of the book next week perfect sounds like a great time yeah so that's where we'll leave you for this week thank you of course to our producers tim and andrew for helping us keep our shows lights on you can check out all of our links in the show notes you can find our schedule our patreon previous episodes website all of our social media accounts in one convenient location yeah and and make sure that you give those a check we also have the short pour coming out or 
coming out. Yeah, coming out or have already came out. Talking about Born with Another Castle. You can definitely find that over in the shortboard feed. Again, link on our website and otherwise. Um, we do want to thank a new patron, Xavier, for joining us as a bar back. Glad to have you on the team here again. Fantastic to have you back. So. With that, like PJ said, Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, and Facebook, Words and Whiskey Show at gmail.com, patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey, and t shirts on T Public. Follow that link, like PJ was saying. Thank you all so much. Before we actually sign off, speaking of oh, yeah. t shirts, I yeah. got the first, like the first test t shirt, and I got the corn, corn dogs on the beach one. Huh? Immediately spilled grease on it, and now I have a permanent grease stain on this corn dog shirt. So <laughs> amazing. So, so, you know, that was that was on the plane to Italy. Oh, no. That's so <laughs> funny. I can't believe you've done this to yourself. <laughs> My God, man. It's like that's... a snowman, snowman shaped grease stain. Oh, that's maybe no. Maybe an inch long. It, like, just this like blobby thing, like right, right below the, uh, the insignia. Well, you know what you have to do now is you have to turn it into a paint shirt. And then you get another one. It's such a soft t-shirt that Kaylin actually stole it. And it's one of her pajama shirts now. Oh, well, you need to get another one then. <laughs> I do have the the other one here for you that I'll bring in a couple of weeks. But the, oh, what was the one that I ordered the extra large in? It wasn't Corn Dogs. It wasn't the Rye Circle. It wasn't Risky Gambit. Literate? No, because I didn't do literate on that one. I'll share remember with in a second. I'll grab it in a minute. Oh, it was, was share a drink with a friend. Yep, it's totally the share a drink with a friend, which yeah. looks pretty good on black. I think it would look better on a different color, but Sicker Mule is only doing it on black. So, gotcha. Well, for that deal. Um, we're not doing it through Sticker Mule, so you don't have to worry about that. It's true, but dear we are listener. still looking at. Yeah, dear listener, please go to T Public and check them out there. We hope to have something else that is more self-contained up and running eventually but we have so many other things going on like our D show that launches next week as well oh, check yeah. out the bonus episode that'll be in the feed that launches next week that is launching next week tales of kana catacomb party tales of kana going to be very exciting we are very very pumped we've been working on this for a long time and have wanted to get this into everyone's ears for months now and we're glad to finally be at that stage and doing the damn thing faux show in addition the other shows are going to be coming out soon we're working on logos we're so close all right cool